You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be, so if you want to grab your Bible and go ahead and flip there, that would serve you. If you need a Bible, um, you should have some underneath uh, your seats, and so maybe underneath every three or four seats, something like that. And so if you need one, feel free to grab one of those. That's the version we use, and uh, we'd love for you to have that. If you don't have a good Bible, you feel free to take that one home. Um, we, we need to start with just one um, quick family issue, kind of a family predicament that we're in. <clears throat> and so before we jump into Isaiah 9, uh, let, me, let me roll this out for you just to, uh, to maybe get this on some of your radars. Uh, we currently, right now, have 16 home groups, 16. Okay, now if you divide like our number of people that have been coming on Sunday morning into home groups, that would mean that we have roughly, um, if, if we had our people kind of involved in home groups and, and moving toward home groups, that we would have about 35-ish people per home group. Okay, now that's an impossibility. Okay, so, so here's, here's one of the things that, that we are really praying toward and we need to keep on your radar and so that if God starts to kind of put this in you, you, you feel just the movement of God on, in this particular area, we want you to know this is a needed thing in our church for additional home group leaders. And so if, if that's something that you feel like might be resonating in you, if you want to kind of start marching down that road, um, we're not saying that if you, you come to us and say, I'm in, that, that we're in for that yet. Um, but, but we're saying that we would love to start walking down that road with you and see, see how God kind of directs and all that. In January, Travis, um, who you just met earlier today, is, uh, is going to be doing another kind of, it's about a six or seven week training for home group leaders that leads to an assessment, all that. So if you're interested in that, we would love to start partnering with you to help kind of get the pipeline flowing for additional home group leaders. So if there's something in you that kind of resonates on that particular area, if you'll make sure you see Travis after the service, he normally hangs around the little home group table out there, um, he would absolutely love you for that. Okay, Isaiah chapter 9. Um, this is a, a classic Christmas text right here. Okay, now, I, and I just want to remind you before I, I read it to you again that um, it, this is going to be a good time for you to make sure that you are reading the Old Testament with the New Testament in mind. That, that you get to read the Old Testament, it's specifically this classic Christmas text with, with, with all that we see, this vivid picture of Jesus that is displayed and presented for us in the New Testament. When you think about the Old Testament, I think this is maybe a good way to think about it. That it is, it is Jesus predicted. That, that's all, if you want to summarize the Old Testament, that's what it's about. It is about the prediction of Jesus. And if you want to summarize the New Testament, it's about the presentation of Jesus. And so when you're reading um, a, a classic Christmas text like this, we get... We get to read it from a privileged position. We get to read it from this side of the cross, and we get to read into that all that we know, this, this vivid picture that we see presented of Jesus in the New Testament. So with that in mind, um, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have spoken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For, for to us, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Um, I think we would all agree that if you just look around in our, in our culture, Christmas is everywhere. Wouldn't you agree with that? You cannot turn somewhere right now without seeing something holiday-related, Christmas-related. You can't turn anywhere without seeing that. If you drive into my neighborhood, Christmas is clearly announced. It's clearly announced. You, you see the lights. I don't know what your neighborhood looks like, but mine is over the top with lights. We've got little blow-up Santas all over the place. 
We've got reindeer out in the yard. We've got the nativity scenes out. All of that stuff is out. Christmas is clearly announced in our culture. If you have a TV and you've got it on, um, you're going to hear and you're going you're gonna to see something related to Christmas on that. You're, you're, you're going to do that. If you've got a mailbox, you are going to get something in your mailbox Christmas related. Probably someone trying to sell you something for Christmas. It, it's announced everywhere. I think it would be safe to say that that in our culture, Christmas is the most celebrated, the most affirmed holiday that we have. Wouldn't you agree with that? That that it is widespread in its general acceptance of of our culture. Now, here's my angst this morning. My angst is that in the midst of affirming it and celebrating it, in the midst of all of that, that, that even for Christians, even you and I in this room, that it is so easy to miss All that God is saying when he sent Jesus, his sinless son, to to be wrapped in human flesh, to to live and to dwell among us, to live a sinless life, to die an undeserving death and be raised again on the third day, that it's so easy for us to miss that, that, that message, all that that message is saying, all that God is saying when he sent Jesus as a child. I, my, my angst is, I think for a lot of us, that, that we're missing some things here. Okay, so, so here's what I want to do. This, this is the direction of this morning. I want to let this text give you three things that, that it announces and that Christmas announces. Like th- three things that if you miss one of these, you, you are missing the essence of what Christmas is. You're, you're missing what God is communicating to the world about Christmas when he sent his son. Okay, so, so three things out of this text that, uh, that, that Isaiah is announcing about Christmas. Okay, so, so here we go. Number one. Number one goes like this. There is darkness. There is darkness. Okay, do you see how, do you see how verse, uh, or chapter 9 starts? Chapter 9 starts with the word but. If you have an NIV, it starts with the word nevertheless. And, and here's the point. Chapter 9 is written in light of chapter 8. And if you've got an ESV at the top of chapter 8, you're going to see something to the, to the essence of Assyria is about to kill Israel. Okay, that, that's the, the, the context of what these words are written into. The, the context that, that Isaiah is speaking Christmas words to is it, a very dark place. And it runs in probably three different directions, this darkness. One is you have a physical darkness. Okay, if you go to chapter 8, top of the line, you're going to see that Assyria is knocking on the door of Israel. So if you're a little history buff, um, Isaiah was written, th- th- specifically this chapter, in, in roughly 730 B.C. Okay, now, um, if you know your Bible history, in 722 B.C., the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, closest to Assyria, was, I mean, just devastated by the Assyrian army. Absolutely devastated. The people um, were deported. I mean, just a, br- a brutal, brutal event. Okay, so, so that's 10 years in the future. That, that's what's happening. So at this time in 730, um, when Isaiah is writing this, you have um, Assyria that is knocking on the door. Of, of the northern tribes of, of Israel, that they are coming in. Listen, they're bent on world dominance. They're a cruel and a ruthless people. And, and they are coming in to, to, for absolute conquest. Okay, now it's, it's, hard for me to, uh, it's hard for me to convey like what that would feel like if that was you. And, and so picture the scene where you've got a foreign army on both coasts and they have just landed, east coast, west coast. They, they outnumber our army 10 to 1. They're, they're far more advanced in military stuff than our guys are. I mean, you know it's just a matter of time before we all die. You, you know it's a matter of time for um, the men are probably going to die and the ladies are probably going to be deported. They're going to put you on a ship somewhere and send you to who knows where. Now, can you imagine that scene? This is, when it says there's darkness on the land, this is the sort of darkness that it's talking about. You have a foreign army on the scene ready to dominate. Okay, but, but there, there's more than just a physical component of this. There's also this emotional component. That if you read through um, chapter 8, that there is no joy. There is no gladness. There is no rejoicing. Um, here, here a while back, here recently, we took our staff down and uh, ate in downtown Fort Worth and went to a little comedy club. It was so fun to laugh. Like, you know, like the deep belly laugh, like those laughs? There's just something good for the soul in that, Right? And, 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 and when you get to Isaiah 8, 9, that there is no laughing. That there is no rejoicing. That there, are, there are no belly laughs happening here. There is despair. There is distress. There is anxiety. There is fear. It's just dominating. It's like a tangible presence over Isaiah 8 and 9. Okay, but there's maybe one more component of that. It's a spiritual component. That the people of Israel, when, when you start um, reading through Isaiah... It becomes very clear that the people of Israel, they, they have turned from God. 
and, and all the physical and emotional darkness that just saturates the book and saturates chapter 8, that, that's all really just a metaphor and a shadow of this spiritual reality, that they've turned from God and turned to idols, that they've stopped going to God, leaning on God, trusting in God, and, and now they're trying to make all these little foreign alliances. They're, they're looking horizontally for people to save them. Like, who can we just get this little partnership with and surely we'll be okay? If we can just kind of make this little truce, then, then we'll be all right. They're looking at everyone for a savior other than God. And, and here's the ironic thing. The more they look horizontally for a savior, the, the, more, the, the deeper and, and the more dangerous their darkness becomes. It is an overbearing way. Their unbelief has created an unbelievable, tangible, spiritual darkness across the land. It's plagued the people of Israel. They're looking for every, in everyone else for, for, for wisdom, for direction, for leadership other than God. What, what should we do? Everyone other than God. So there's this spiritual darkness that is set over the people of Israel. Okay, so now, okay, now hear this. Hear the context of these Christmas words. The context of these Christmas words is Israel is a dark place. That's the context. The context of of John 1, of Matthew 1 and 2, of Luke 1 and 2. The context of all that is the world is a really dark place. There, There is a real thing called darkness. That physical, emotional, spiritual darkness, a turning from God, a, a worship of, of idols. That, 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 that's real. That's the context of Christmas. That the world is dark. See, here's one of our main problems when it comes to Christmas. And I think this is actually why it's so affirmed and celebrated in our culture. Is Christmas is so sentimental in nature. And so you drive by a nativity. Who doesn't like a baby in a manger? Who doesn't like that? Who doesn't like some shepherd and some wise men kind of gathered around? You've got cattle lowing in the background, some nice Christmas music set to it, maybe some apple cider in a mug, right? Who doesn't like that? It's sentimental in nature. But listen, if, if Christmas is first to you sentimental, if it's first to you sentimental, then you have missed the meaning of Christmas. See, the reason Christmas has to happen is because there's darkness, that the reason Christmas has to happen is because people have turned away from God and worshiped a million other gods in his place. See, that, that's the reason that Christmas actually happens. That the reason Jesus came is because there is darkness. And, and like that, that darkness, that, that's, that's a description of you, right? Like when, when you're born, that there's a natural propensity in you to turn from God and to turn and worship idols. If you want an apt description of post-Genesis 3 world, darkness would be it. That there is a physical oppression, that there is an emotional distress and despair. There's a spiritual darkness. That would be the the description of post-Genesis 3 world, darkness. Listen, that's the context of Christmas. That is the reason Christmas happens is because there is darkness. So, so see, before, before it's a sentimental holiday for us to celebrate, it is a sobering kind of a statement about the condition of the world, that the world is a really dark place in, in need of, of great help. And, and this is the good news of Christmas. So th- this is where we, we turn to um, chapter 9. It starts with the word but. Do you see that in chapter 9? It starts with the word but. That's like a contradictory statement. So the world is this way, but something is going to happen. Like the, the world is this way, and we need help. We need serious help. And here's the good news is God is on the way. God is on the move. If you've um, seen the Chronicles of Narnia, you, you might could put it this way. That Aslan is on the move. That this is the point when you start, when you flip over to chapter 9, the point is that there is darkness. The world is very dark, but God is doing something about that. And you see what he does in, in chapter 9, verse 2. It says this. The people who walked in darkness... They have seen a great light. So so this is what God is doing here. He's sending this great light. And it goes on to say, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. So so if you want to know what God does in response to darkness, okay? So, So the context of Christmas, darkness. What God does in Christmas, he pierces the darkness. This is what God is doing in Christmas. Jesus in a manger, that, that, that is God piercing the darkness. That is God moving. That is God doing something about darkness, physical darkness, oppression, cruelty. That, that's what God is doing about all these things. And you see in verse 3, 4, and 5, three things that, that kind of come along with, with light, with God piercing the darkness. And, and look at the three of them here. Three things that come along with it. First in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. 
So, so there, was, there was no joy, but, but now there's joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So, so here's what always follows light, gladness. G- gladness replaces the gloom. Isn't that good news? Like, this is part of the good news of Christmas. Isaiah chapter 8, darkness, gloom, despair. Isaiah chapter 9, these Christmas words. God pierces that darkness, and here's what follows, follows his light. It, it always follows with joy. That, that when God works, when God saves, when God pushes back darkness, that joy always follows that. It's like this natural little byproduct. It's something that, that God just kind of brings along behind. Wherever he goes it is joy. I, and he gives these two great illustrations of it. He says, if you don't know the sort of joy I'm talking about here, the sort of joy that comes along with God and light, this piercing of the darkness, if you don't know what sort of joy that is, think about a, a farmer who has spent all year planting and sowing, and then he finally gets to reap a harvest. Think about that guy, that that's what joy looks like. Think about the, uh, think about the, 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 the army, they've gone into battle at the risk of their life, and they have just won, and they're sitting down, and they're, def- they're dividing the spoil. That, that's what it looks like. If you want to put that in 21st century language, I think of um, the Dallas Maverick locker room after they won the NBA title. That, that's what joy looks like. He's saying, if you want to know what this joy looks like, that, that's it. Gloom is replaced with gladness. But, but there's more. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. He says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So you've got freedom replacing oppression. Freedom replacing oppression. So he's saying, do do you see Assyria? You see them knocking at your door? Like they're they're busting in right now. Like they're coming through right now. They've They've already gotten into several little parts of the northern kingdom. Nephtali and Zebulun, they're already there. They've already ravaged that and pillaged that. Do you see that oppression that's coming? There's going to be a day that all that oppression goes away. There's going to be a day when, when I pierce the darkness, when I come in, when I'm doing my thing, God's saying, when I do that, when I, when I pierce the darkness with light, here's what will follow that. Freedom will follow that. And listen, this goes in two ways. There's a a physical component of this I think we need to hear today, and and there's a spiritual component. That there is a physical component of when God pierces the darkness and sets things right, the oppression, physical oppression in your life right now will be lifted for you. That that could come in the form of a cruel boss, a a really difficult marriage. I mean, we we could go on for days here, but there will be a day where God's saying that that all of that is lifted. But I think even bigger that that he's saying that there's going to be a day where I break the spiritual oppression that's over you, where where I break the rod of Satan and sin in your life, and and you've got this freedom from it. It, It's no longer this cruel master who beats you down. There's going to be a day where where, where my strong arm smashes it, that that there's freedom from oppression. But but there's one more. Look at at verse 5. He says this, for every boot, and this is where when light goes, this is what follows God piercing the darkness. This is what follows light. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Post-Genesis 3, war, fighting, killing, it's just a part of creation. It's just a part of how the world operates. And God is saying that there will be a day where all that is done. When every weapon of war is burned in a fire, Every one of them. Every garment of war is burned and no longer will it be. Can, can you imagine a, a, a place and a time where, um, where you don't have to worry about, is this, is this country really developing a nuclear weapon? And what's going to happen if they get that? You don't have to worry about that? We, we don't have to worry about, um, now, what exactly is that, um, that carrier? Do, like, when did they get that? Well, you don't have to worry about stuff like that? When you don't have to worry about, now, now why would they be developing this? Like, what are, they, what are they posturing themselves? When you don't have to worry about those things, when you don't have to worry about, like, what, what's the next move of a terrorist? And, and, and Isaiah is saying, there is a day that that's coming. When, when peace replaces war. That, that that day is on the horizon. It, it is not far from now, he, he's saying. Okay, so, so that's the second point. That God has pierced the darkness. And, and here's the third one. This is kind of where we'll spend the rest of our time. That, that God pierces the darkness in a certain way. It's not just God coming. It's God coming in a certain way. And look at verse 6. He's going to explain it for us. Verse 6 says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
So, so it's saying that, that God didn't just pierce the darkness. God didn't just come in and push back oppression and push back cruelty and push back um, all of the. He didn't just, he, he came and pushed those back through a child. Like God came a, as a baby. God wrapped himself in, in human flesh and came as a little boy. Now, is, that, is, is there some mystery in that for you? That, that God would take on eyebrows? That God would wrap himself in, in a, the, the body of a little baby? I mean, is there some mystery there? That there should be for you. I mean, it's almost as if God is saying, listen, the darkness is too deep and it's too dangerous for you to solve on your own. It's not like I can um, sit in the other room and just kind of holler some advice over and, and across and out the door to you and, and you solve this thing. You, you can't solve it. I'm actually going to have to come and solve it for you. I, I'm going to have to appear on this scene to take care of this issue that, that you have created here. Okay, and then he gives four, four names that describe um, this, this baby, this, this child that is going to come and set things right. This, this child that is going to come and push back darkness. And these four names go like this, and this is, this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, uh, here's the first one, first one of four, Wonderful Counselor. Do you see that in verse 6? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah is painting a vivid picture of, of, of who Jesus will be for us. That, that Jesus is going to be this wonderful counselor. Now, if you were um, to look at, at Isaiah chapter 8, here's one of the defining marks of their darkness, of the darkness of Isaiah 8, is they have turned from God for leadership, for direction, for decision-making, and, and they have started to look horizontally for all of that. So, so when they are crunched and the decision has to be made, how are we going to make it? That there is no vertical involvement there. It's all horizontal. You see it in verse 19 of chapter 8. You see what it says there? And when they say to you, okay, so, so picture this. Assyria is at your door. An army has just landed east coast, west coast. What do you do? Here's what they do. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums, and of these mystics who chirp and mutter. That, that's what they do. That they're searching for wisdom in all the wrong places. And, and listen, this is the question in, in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19. This is the question. Should not a people inquire of their God? Like, that's the issue. Like, and the problem is they're not inquiring of their God. That They're looking for wisdom again in all the wrong places. They're going to all the wrong places to try to figure out what do we do? How do we accomplish this? It would be akin to a blind person try, trying to kind of latch themselves onto another blind person in hopes that, that that blind person stumbling around everywhere can actually lead them out of the room. This is what they're doing. And God is saying, listen, you don't have to attach yourself to another blind person. You, you, don't, have to, you don't have to go to another blind person and try to get led out of the room. He's saying, Isaiah, announcing, this is Christmas. Into that darkness, I have, sh I, I have shined a light there. And, and that light looks like a child. And that child, his name is Wonderful Counselor. So, so here's what that means. You, you can go to him for wisdom. You can go to him for direction. You can go to him for leadership. And maybe just to try to apply this one, I just wonder how many of us, in just the normal flow of our life, are so guilty of Isaiah chapter 8. Business decision, financial decision, family decision, marriage decision, parenting decision, where we're so guilty of, of Isaiah 8, looking for wisdom in all these, these horizontal places with no vertical involvement. And, and got announcing at Christmas, this is wonderful counselor. That's what I am to you. Like, why, why wouldn't you come? Shouldn't the people of God inquire of their God? Like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be normal? Actually, it's this great announcement. Isaiah is saying, listen, Jesus is, this child is wonderful counselor. So, so probably ought to involve him in that. And maybe you could apply it this way. That it's not just counselor, it's wonderful counselor. And, and so maybe you could ask this question. Does Jesus bring any wonder and awe to your heart? Does he bring any just wonder to you? I mean, this, this is like the Matthew 13. I, I found a treasure in the field. I'll go sell it all to get that treasure. It's that sort of wonder. It's that sort of, a, of amazement. Is Jesus a wonder to you? I mean, it's like this supernatural awe that, that it's inspired there. Some of you men are going to laugh at me when I tell you this, but uh, Laura has convinced me to start. We were members of a, little, of a gym in, in Mansfield. It's not a little one. It's a really big one. 
and uh, they have these fitness classes. Now, if you're a guy in the room and you've been to one of these fitness classes, you know how awkward that is because you're the only guy in the room. And so, so I am the token guy. Laura has talked me into going. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, you know, it's warrior fusion. Let me tell you, it's, yeah. And so, um, so we're doing our warrior fusion thing, and uh, I'm humiliated probably three-quarters of the time in there. But at, at the end, it's all worth it. At the end, there's about five minutes where we do a cool-down, and uh, the, the instructor plays some nice little soothing music, and she makes you lay down and close your eyes, and she gives you, listen to this, this is heaven on earth, lavender-scented eye pillows. So I've got lavender-scented eye pillows. I'm telling you, heaven on earth right here. Over my eyes, the smell of lavender everywhere. And uh, man, here's why I love that. Uh, two or three weeks ago, um, I'm sitting there smelling lavender, and there was just this overwhelming sense that came up. I, I'm just kind of looking. I mean, you just have a, a few minutes to slow down and just, just listen and, and to look. I mean, in that moment, God just reminded me of how he has been a wonderful counselor to me. Like when I look back over the course of my life, I never could have dreamed it. I mean, just this overwhelming sense of, man, this is a God of wonder. Like this is a God of great grace who, who, would, who would say, Rodney, not that road, but this one. Not that, not that girl, but this one. Not this thing, but that one. And I'm just looking at all these little twists and turns, and if it were left up to me, I would have ruined it all. And God has been so gracious in his counsel to me. Do you have some wonder of that in your life? So, so Isaiah says he is wonderful counselor, but, but there's another one here. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and, the name, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And this is the second one. Mighty God. You see that? Mighty. I, I love that just description of Jesus. That he is mighty God. And almost all commentators, when they're kind of reading through this, and analyzing this and kind of um, working through this passage, they'll always pick up on that word mighty has the idea of hero, has the idea of knight in shining armor, like that, that hero that comes in just the nick of time to save the day. And, and it's saying this is, this is who Jesus is. He doesn't just have, he's not just wise, he doesn't just have a good plan, but he's actually mighty. He actually has the strength to carry out that plan. He is this hero that comes in, saves the day in just the nick of time. And you see it in verse 40. You see it where it talks about Midian? That takes us back to the story of Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon, Judges 6, where um, Gideon has an army of about, well, I think it's like 32,000 people. And um, after God gets done with the army, they're down to 300. And they're about to go fight Midian, big army. So, so they went from 32,000 to 300. So now they've got 300 plus Gideon plus God to, to fight Midian. And so do you remember how the, the battle goes? They, they break a few lamps, they shout and scream, and the whole army of Midian turns on themselves and destroys themselves. Point of the story. God is the hero. That, that's the point of the story, that there is this hero God of the Bible. And, and, and just like in the story of Midian and Gideon, he comes in in just the nick of time to save the day. Like th this is the point of the Bible, that Jesus is the hero. That when you look at what you need most and what you need saved from, that in just the right time, Jesus came and he has saved the day for you. That he is mighty God. That he is hero God for you. But, but even, maybe even more than that, it, it also says that, that he is God. He's not just mighty, but he is mighty God. That, that Jesus is God. This is John 1 where it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That the Jesus is God. He, he is God wrapped in human flesh. He is God for your eyes to see. He makes the invisible visible for you, that Jesus actually is God. So he is mighty God. Maybe we just need to sit today and just meditate on this. For those of you who are in need of great help today, like you're in need of help today, that he is mighty God. He's not just wise. He doesn't just know what to do. He actually can accomplish what he wants to do and what he knows is good. Maybe some of you that are in distress today, maybe you just need to take one step back and just remember today. Isaiah is saying that Jesus is mighty God, that, that he, he can actually help here. So I think, I think we have um, this problem sometimes of just writing situations and circumstances off. A rebellious kid, an alienated family member, they'll, they'll never change. 
Like this situation is just beyond repair. There's no way that, there, there's no way that this could be cured. There, there's no way that, that this cancer, this disease, whatever it is. And can I just remind you what Isaiah is saying today? That, that God is really, Jesus is really mighty God. That, that he is infinite in power. That, that anything he wants to do, he, he can do it. That he's not just wise, he doesn't just have a good plan, but he's mighty and he actually has the power to accomplish the plan. Now, there's another name that he uses though. Look at verse 6 again. For to us a child is born, <coughs> to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And then he uses this word, Everlasting Father. Do you see that? Oh gosh, I, I love, there, there's way too much here to mind the depth of, of this one, but I, I love this description of Jesus. And, and let me just make sure, just to cut through any confusion that could be here, we believe in a trinity, right? If, if you're an Orthodox Christian, you believe in the trinity. There's one God, there's three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each one of those persons are fully God. You see the paradox there? There's a lot wrapped up in that, so we're affirming that. Okay, so, so um, people who don't affirm that will sometimes go to this passage as their kind of go-to place to say, but hold on, look here. Jesus is Father, right? And, and so maybe it's just one God expressed in three different ways. And we're saying, no, that it's three distinct persons. Okay, so when it, it talks about God or Jesus as, as everlasting Father, it's not, it, he's not speaking in a Trinitarian way. He, he's not trying to get at the heart of the Trinity when he's saying this. He's talking about how Jesus relates to us. That, that Jesus relates to us as a father does. That he provides for us. He, he, is, um, he, he protects us. He pities us. This is um, Psalms 103.13, that as a father has compassion on his son, so, so does the Lord have compassion on those who fear him. That this is the heart of, of Jesus toward us. He protects. He provides. This is Jesus toward you. I love what J.I. Packer says at the beginning of his book, Knowing God. <clears throat> he says, if you want to test how well a person understands Christianity, it's real easy to do. All you have to do is pry around. All you have to do is poke on how well they understand God as Father. And maybe I could just ask you this question today. <clears throat> do you feel that God loves you? If you're, if you're a Christian in the room, do you feel that God loves you? That he has set his affection on you? Do you, do you feel that? That he is out for you, not against you? And, and here, for, for most of us in the room, this is me included, um, that is easy to affirm but hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? And so can, can, you, can you just hear Isaiah today and let, let him <clears throat> remind you that Jesus is everlasting Father, protector, provider, and, and the way he has compassion on you, the way he seeks your good, everlasting Father. And, and maybe you just need to emphasize the word everlasting for a second. Everlasting means that through this particular trial that you're going through, this particular issue that you're facing, this particular disease, this particular cancer, this particular rebellion, this particular whatever, it, it's everlasting. There, there's not going to be a moment that he abandons you. There's not going to be a moment that he lets you go, that, that he's an everlasting father for you, an everlasting protector for you, that everlastingly he, he has set his affection on you. Can you hear Isaiah say that? That is the good news that Christmas announces. That, that now this mighty hero God is also your father. And, and one more and, and we'll be done here. Verse 6. Isaiah says this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, and, and then I love this one. And then he says, Prince of Peace. You might underline that one. And, and I want to spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking this idea of Prince of Peace. Isaiah is saying that, that this one that's coming, this child, it, he is going to be the one who establishes peace. Okay, so when, when we use the word peace and the Bible uses the word peace, um, I, I think we mean two totally different things. Like if you're just going to use it in your common vocabulary and the, the way you co would commonly use it, it probably means something more like this. There is a ceasefire between enemies. Okay, that's peace. So, so we have relational conflict and now we're at peace. Now, now we're no longer trying to kill one another. Okay, that's peace. Or you, you might use it kind of as this inner calmness. So, so it is 
Um, you know, it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. I've got my apple cider. The, the Christmas music is going. The lights are up. And it's peaceful. Okay, so you might use it that way, this, this intercommonness. But that is not the way the Bible uses it. The, in the Bible, this word peace is a big, robust, bold, rich word that takes us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates, and seven times in this creation of Genesis 1 and 2, you hear God say, and it is good. And it is good. And it is good. Seven times he says, and it is good. And, and so he, he creates man and woman and puts them in the middle of the garden. And this is good. It's very good, as a matter of fact. Okay, now this, this kind of introduces us to this idea of shalom. In the garden, you have, uh, you, you have man and woman, Adam and Eve, who are at peace with God. There is, this is the Hebrew word shalom. That they are at peace with God. There is harmony between them and God. Things between them and God are working the way they should be working. And then you have peace between Adam and Eve. There's peace between one another, between human beings. And so between Adam and Eve, things are working the way they should be working. There's no resentment. There's no bitterness. There's not Eve looking at her husband and saying, I'm going to, I mean, there's not, there's not all of that. That's so often in so much of ours, Right? So Genesis 1 and 2, you, you've got harmony between man and woman. You've got shalom. Things are operating the way they should be operating. And you also have shalom, peace happening between um, man and woman and the, the creation. There's no thorns and there's no thistles. There's no weeds in their yard. They plant something and it grows just perfectly. The fruit's produced. I, it, so, so work is not difficult. Marriage is not difficult. Parenting is not, di- all of these things are working the way they should be working. Okay, now this, uh, this introduces us to this idea of peace, this idea of shalom in the Bible. It, it is this, it is, it is the world operating the way it should be operating. That, that's shalom, that's peace. It, it's between us and God, things are operating how they, should be, how they should be going. Things are as they should be between us and God. Things are as they should be between us and other people. Things are as they should be between us and creation. There, there's no tornadoes. There's no hurricanes. There's no floods. There's no hell damage. Okay, Things are as they should be. That's shalom. Okay, now Genesis 3 comes along. And I love how, how one uh, theologian, how he talks about sin. He calls sin the vandalism of shalom. That, that what sin does is it breaks peace. It breaks the harmony, the, the way things should be operating. Sin comes right in the middle of that and smashes it. Maybe you could think about it this way. I've heard shalom described, if you could picture a blanket that has these threads. You have some threads going you know, this way, and, and the other threads are laced over the top of it, and, and they're laced perfectly. Everything fits properly. Okay, that, that's shalom. Things are working the way they should be working. But in Genesis 3, it's as if Adam grabbed one of those threads and ripped it out of the blanket, and now the entire blanket is framed. Okay, that's Genesis 3. It's this vandalism of shalom. Things were working the way they should have been working, and all of a sudden in Genesis 3, everything frays, everything breaks. And this is why Genesis 1 and 2, we all have a trace of that still left in us. And this is why every person on the planet knows when they look around that something isn't right. That life is not the way it should be. That when your marriage is falling apart, there is something in you that resonates. This is not the way it should be. When um, you've worked hard and you get fired for no reason... There's something that resonates in us. This is not the way life is supposed to be. Um, when, uh, we can just go down forever here. When, when you get cancer, there is something that resonates. Life is not supposed to be this way. When, when, when your child is rebellious, there's something that resonates there. That this is a vandalism of shalom. That this is not the way life should be. That there is something deep inside of all of us that remembers Genesis 1 and 2 and, and the way life was in shalom. And so it gives us this recognition of all of this brokenness that we see is not, it, it's not, it's not the way it should be. It's, it's not right. And, and we all have that. I'll, I'll never forget this moment. Um, we took a mission trip with about 50 or 60 students to New Orleans right after Katrina. And uh, there was one particular day that we were, uh, we were helping a lady. I mean, so it, it, this is just nasty work, by the way. This is a flooded homes. The particular home we were working in this day had um, water all the way to the ceiling of the home. And so you can just imagine, you open up a refrigerator that has not been opened in 
it had probably been six or seven months after being flooded. I mean, it was, it was so disgusting. And so, but it was just one of those incredible days. Um, we were at a, a lady named Shirley's house. And so we're, we're taking stuff out. We're getting to minister to and love on Shirley. Um, she had an old safe in the house that, that she remembered the combination to, but it was so rusted because all the water, she couldn't get it open. And so some of our guys spent all day trying to bust open the safe, and they finally got it open and freed her possessions and gave her back her treasure, all that. And so it was just one of those days. We had great conversation with Kit. I mean, just, just one of those days that I'm sitting there thinking, this is how the, the world should be. This is, this is the whisper of shalom. And then on the way home, I got this phone call about a guy named Tristan Yancey. Tristan was a sophomore in our student ministry. Um, God had just recently saved him. And uh, on the Monday of spring break, this was a spring break mission trip. On the Monday of spring break, he had gone in for a knee surgery. He he'd had a football injury. He's kind of the linebacker, big, 6'2", 220, 230, just a, a handsome young man. And uh, so on, on the Monday, he has a knee surgery. On Thursday, he is walking um, to his car to go for a checkup, just a routine checkup to make sure everything's good. And a blood clot dislodges out of his, the surgery is out of his knee in that area and lodges into his heart and instantly kills him. In that moment, I went from the whisper of shalom to the gravity of anti-shalom of the vandalism of shalom. I went from, this is the Genesis 1 and 2 whisper, this is the way things should be, to this, is, this cannot be. This is not the way things should be. And listen, can, can we, if, if you want to see um, the evidence of the Genesis 1 and 2 whisper of shalom in all of our hearts, just go to a funeral. That's all you have to do. And you see very quickly something deep down in the human heart cry out that this is wrong, that this is not natural, that this is not good. Uh, you see it in, in John chapter 11. Um, some of you probably memorized this verse, the, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Do you remember why he was weeping? Because his friend Lazarus had just died. And Jesus is recognizing this is not the way things should be. This is, this is anti-shalom. This is what sin has produced. This is not the way I created the world to work. And do you hear what Isaiah is saying? I am announcing to you. God has pierced the darkness in the form of a child, and this child is going to be the one who restores shalom, who, who brings things back into the way they should be. So, so do, you know what, do you know why Jesus does miracles in the New Testament? Reason one is because it's authenticating the fact that he is God. So it authenticates the messenger. But here's the second reason. Because he is reversing the curse. He, he is, he, he's taking things back to the way they should be. So, so he comes across a, a, a lady that is sick. And he, ta- he removes the sickness from her. Why? He is saying that, listen, sin has brought anti-shalom. But I bring shalom. I, I am the prince of peace. I, I am the one that is going to reestablish, bring things back to the way they should be. He, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Why? Because he's saying, listen, this is what I do. I I am ushering in a time where there will be no more death. No no more death. But but it's not until another um, maybe 40 or so chapters that, that he shows us how Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who would restore peace, how he would go about doing it. And this is Isaiah 53. How's he going to accomplish this peace? This is how. That this God that came, Jesus, that came as a child would would end up on a cross. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteem him stricken, uh, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, that brought us shalom. He got the anti-shalom, he got the sin, and we got the shalom. We got the peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6. And, and we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. God the Father has laid on his son, this child, this prince of peace, the iniquity of us all. The anti-shalom fell on the head of Jesus, so shalom can fall on us. 
This is the good news of Christmas, that there is darkness, that God has pierced the darkness, and God has pierced the darkness with something particular, with his son, his one and only son, who came in the form of a child, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this this prince of peace, who will one day restore to us what we see in Revelation 21. Do you you remember the picture? Do you remember it? He he got the anti-shalom so we could get the shalom, and and when he comes back, when he, when he returns, this is what he's bringing with him in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We've got this reestablishment of Genesis 1 and 2 here. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, gloom replaced with gladness, and death shall be no more. Peace, shalom, will be restored. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. See, this is the good news of Christmas. This whole thing, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and and the restoring of peace, that this is done. It is set in motion. The the writing is on the wall for this thing. That that it is coming down the way that God is setting the world right. All wrongs will be corrected. All things bent will be straightened. All victims will be vindicated. This is coming for all of us in the room. If you're a believer, if if you're in Christ, then this is what's in store for you. Shalom. Genesis 1 and 2 comes back in Revelation 21 and 22. And if you um, ever doubt that God is going to do this, that he is in for this. Then look at the last part of Isaiah 9, verse 7. It is the zeal, the passion of the Lord to do this. Amen? May it be. Let's pray. And can I, can I make this personal for you? Let me, let me read Isaiah 6 one more time, or Isaiah 9, 6 one more time for you. I, I'm going to just change one word in it, just to make sure you don't miss the personal nature of this. Let me just read this over you. For to me, a child is born. To me, a son is given. And can, can you just personalize that, that? That this morning, God has given you a wonderful counselor. For some of us in the room, that we're just in the clouds of confusion this morning. We're really struggling on on a decision, on a what's next, on a, can can I just remind you, God is saying, Jesus is a wonderful counselor for you. For for those in the room that um, you are in the pits this morning, it was tough for you to get out of bed this morning, despair is all over you today, can can I remind you that, that God is saying that that Jesus is for you, mighty God, hero God. He's not just wise, he is powerful. That whatever your situation is, whatever your circumstances are, that they're not hopeless. That the grace of God is powerful enough to come around that. Can I remind some of you this morning that, that God is saying that, listen, Jesus is an everlasting father. Everlasting father. That you are cared for. That that, that Jesus is for you. That this mighty God that, that is ultimately powerful, that he leverages that power for your good on your behalf. remind us all this morning that that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Genesis 3 that 
sin vandalized shalom, ushered in anti-shalom, anti-peace, ushered in way the things should not be. And Isaiah is announcing to us that there will be a Revelation 21 day, a new heavens, a new earth, where Jesus says, I have made all things new. Everything crooked straightened out. Everything bent has been bent back. That the fraying fabric has been reattached and, and re-sewn. That, that he is the Prince of Peace. And maybe you're in a situation today where, where the cry of your heart is kind of that Genesis 1 and 2 whisper that, that you know that this is not the way things should be. That this situation, it shouldn't be this way. Christmas is this beautiful announcement that there will be a day when everything will be set right. When the way things should be, it'll actually be. And so God, we, we ask you, God, we, we praise you for the fact that that you have sent your son, a wonderful counselor to us. God, God, that you have sent Jesus, a mighty God to us, a hero to us, who saves us from sin and brokenness and despair. God, that you have sent to us an everlasting father who protects us, who provides for us, who has compassion on us, who loves us. God, God, that you have sent the Prince of Peace, the Restorer of Shalom, the, the, the mighty God who will bring back Genesis 1 and 2, the way things should be. So, so God, like the disciples, we ask you, God, help our unbelief. God, will you, will you give us a sure confidence of these things? God, will you give us firm belief in these things? God, as we, as we celebrate Christmas this, this year, may it not just move us in a sentimental way, but may we see that the world is in darkness. Genesis 3, darkness. Sin has vandalized shalom. But you have pierced that darkness. You have sent Jesus. And, and so God, will, will you help us see that? God, will you give us good thoughts about that? God, I pray for those um, in, in the room today who cannot personalize a child was given to me. God, God this, this day, this Christmas might, might be a moment for them where, where they get to hold up their life and say, God, here I am. God, I, I'm, I'm trusting you with my life. I'm, I've surrendered it to you. This, this, this life is your life. I am yours. And God, I treasure you above all things. I love you. I want you. And, and here's the beautiful thing, if that's you in the room. In that moment, the Bible says that God saves you. Saves you from his wrath uh, against sin. Saves you from hell. And saves you to a, a, an everlasting relationship with God. So God, I pray that you might move in us in that sort of a way. God, we love you. We, we thank you for the grace that is displayed at Christmas. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.